You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week eight. Today's teaching is on Exodus 13, 17 through 14, 31. Thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. I did not like talking to a tape recorder last time, even though Christy was sitting there smiling at me the whole time. It wasn't fun. <laughs> it's much nicer to have you. And I will confess in advance, I'm having some eye problems, so I am staying out of the glare, and if I lose my place in my notes, you'll just have to bear with me, because um, um, it's a bit of a struggle. So, today, Christy said last week was the climax, but I think today's pretty good too, right? We get, we get to the, so she stole it already, but we're going to do some good stuff. So we're going to pick up our story after Passover. The Israelites are headed out. They don't go by that northern coastal road because there were a lot of Egyptian fortifications and then they'd run into Philistines, right? And um, God doesn't want to, them to start out fighting. So they're going to head southeast. Um, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Did that strike you as interesting? We talked last week, Christy talked about how often God uses physical symbols and reminders. And I think the bones would have been that. Taking those bones would have reminded them that what's happening there is a fulfillment of a promise God made hundreds of years before. And that Joseph believed it. Their forefathers trusted God and in his promises. And that as they take these bones with them, the Israelites are going to need to keep trusting in that same God and those same promises. Because they're going to run in right out into the wilderness. And as they begin, a pillar of cloud and fire appears and stays with them every day. So what event earlier in Exodus does that remind you of? the burning bush, right? Julie knows. <laughs> she taught that one. Um, Julie talked then about how often fire is seen when God's presence is manifest. That's a, a symbol often used about him. Look at these verses. Uh, she's got them up. About the pillar of fire. And the Lord went before them day by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved. So the angel of God moved and the pillar of cloud moved. And the next one is 1424. In the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces. So I think when you put all this together, you've got to say that... God is present in this pillar of cloud and fire. And he's called the angel of God here. What was he called in Exodus 3? Do you remember? It was called the angel of the Lord there. But I think we're talking about the very same thing. And do you remember the word that Julie taught us? Maybe you knew it already. That describes what, what when God appears like that. You can, you can put it up now. <laughs> okay, theophany. Do you remember that? Definition, theophany, when there's a manifest appearance of God. So just in this one passage, we see that the pillar provided them with guidance. It provided them with light during the night and with protection when the Egyptians closed in on them. That's a pretty good appearance of God. But there's one part of the definition on the screen that doesn't really fit what's going on here very well. What, what part is it? Read through it. It 
It's that last bit, right? It says sudden and temporary. This wasn't temporary. God's going to stay with them. So there's more than a theophany happening here. God has come to stay with his people. Look at Exodus 29, 45, and 46. This is God speaking. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See that purpose statement there? I brought them out so that I might dwell with them. This is a major turning point. Ever since Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, God has appeared briefly, occasionally to humans, right? He has kept appearing, but he hasn't stayed with anyone. He hasn't stayed with them. Now we're entering a new phase. From this point until the end of time, with just a couple of temporary lapses, God is going to dwell with his people. So this is a pretty significant thing. He's always omnipresent, but there's a special presence of God that his people will experience, not just visiting them, but dwelling with them. That's his ultimate goal. And the next step in this is you'll, you'll come to next year when we finish Exodus. In Exodus 40, 34 and 35, this is the, when the tabernacle is dedicated. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the presence of God that's been in the pillar of cloud and fire is, now has a place, a, a, a location to, to dwell in the tabernacle. What's the next step going to be? Think through your biblical history. When they come to a permanent location, what do they have? Look at 2 Chronicles 7, a temple. And when Solomon dedicates the temple, it says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. See the fire appearing again? And God is in the midst of his people, but only the high priest can approach him closely, then only at a prescribed time and in a prescribed way. So God is present there, but he's not very accessible still, is he? What's the next step in God dwelling with his people? Pentecost, Acts 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Fire appeared, just like before, but in, on individual persons this time. God is dwelling with his people in a new way. He's indwelling them. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, living in each and every believer. Remember how Paul said in 1 Corinthians that our bodies are temples now? So what do you picture when you think of temple? I probably think of a beautiful building, maybe something ancient, right? But for the Jews, the important feature of the temple was that glorious presence of God, not the building. They treasured that presence and were zealous to keep all impurity away from it. And that presence is now inside each one of us. If you have trouble grasping the concept of Christ through the Holy Spirit living in you, 
maybe you can picture the pillar of cloud and fire just moving right inside the center of you and doing for you what he did for the Israelites. Think on that. Guiding, directing, protecting right there. That doesn't look as good from the outside, but we have him. One day comes the glorious finale described in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's a glorious prospect, isn't it? Even better than having him indwelling us. So the pillar of cloud and fire is not just something helpful for the Israelites, but it's a significant step forward in what God has been planning to do through the ages. Now he has come back to dwell with his people. So back to the Israelites on the outskirts of Egypt. God told Moses to turn back and look lost so that the Egyptians would want to pursue them, right? And we're not going to go into that hardening of hearts. You can look back at Lesson 5 if you um, still want to hear more about it. We're going to pass over that. But look at God's stated purpose in tricking the Egyptians. In 14.4, God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord Look at those two phrases. I will get glory and they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, you've been marking that one phrase about knowing God all the way through the text, right? That was God's purpose, not just for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites as well. And it wasn't just for Israel, but for the nations beyond them. You read in about how um, Rahab told the spies in the book of Joshua that everyone around knew what God had done and was living in fear. So over and over in the Old Testament, we read that God wanted the nations to know him and to give glory to him. I think that these two little phrases tucked in there actually express the heart of God for mankind throughout time. We're meant to bring him glory and to, to know him and to make him known to the nations, right? Maybe not just mankind, but all of creation has that purpose. The psalmist said that the heavens declare the glory of God. Paul said in Romans 1.20 that ever since creation, God's invisible attributes have been seen in the things that have been made. So even though these two statements are just sort of slipped into a verse, I think this is a powerful summary of God's goal in creation. But the Israelites missed it. They acted as if creating the nation of Israel was the end game, as if they were the ultimate goal of God's plan even after the death and resurrection of Christ, when Gentiles began to be included in the church, what did they do? At first, the Jews had a really tough time even letting them in, much less working to reach them. They had to be convinced and convicted. I wonder sometimes if we act a bit the same way as if our personal salvation or our church experience is God's end game. This is it rather than seeing ourselves as using what we have to work toward God's bigger goal, because it has always been bigger than us. We sometimes talk about the Israelites being short-sighted. We like to say that about them, right? But are we? Are we doing the same thing? These are kingdom goals. Are we pursuing the kingdom? So just as God had said, Pharaoh came after the Israelites with the best and fastest of his army, and he soon caught up with them. And before we beat on the Israelites again for the way they responded when the Egyptian chariots chased them down, remember, they were slaves for generations. 
You've heard how people who spend years in prison have trouble getting back into the outside world, making choices and taking care of themselves. How much more would that slave mentality have been deeply, deeply entrenched in the Israelites? So we need to give them a bit of a break, but I wanna look at their response in two parts. If you're listening just to the audio, there's a chart you wanna look at. First, they took their cue from their surroundings. I'm waiting for the first part. Okay, because I haven't seen this yet myself. Mandy did, does this gorgeous job, okay. They took their cue from their surroundings. They focused on the Egyptians and were full of fear. But Moses told them what? To focus on something else, to focus on God and on, we're, we're getting there, God and on his deliverance rather than on the army coming after them. He said, stand firm, fear not, see the salvation of the Lord. That requires a central focus on God, which I think could also be called fear of God. When God is first and foremost and he fills your vision, those other things recede into the background, right? Honestly, though, I would take a really powerful fear of God to make advancing chariots recede into the background, but maybe it could blur them a little bit. What was the other thing the Israelites did? They focused on themselves and on their misery. They were full of self-pity, talking about dying in the wilderness. Have you ever dealt with someone, whether a child or an adult, who was so full of misery and self-pity, complaining about a problem that they wouldn't even be quiet long enough for you to help them fix it? Yeah? You wanna say, okay, I heard you. Now be quiet and let's see what we can do about this. I think that's what the Israelites were doing. They were all wrapped up in their misery. Moses told them very appropriately to be silent, hold their peace and let the Lord fight for them. Again, the proper response is coming. It comes from looking first to God. Uh, there it is, okay. Now we get to that part of the story that everyone knows about, right? The crossing of the sea. You were asked to draw a line on your map marking the route the Israelites took. How'd that go? I'd love to see a composite picture with everyone's lines drawn all over it, okay? I, I thought of having a paper and as you come in, you know, draw your line. Um, if you had trouble with this, you're in excellent company. Scholars disagree on exactly what route the Israelites took and I'm not gonna pin down a specific route. I'll show you some of the factors involved. First is linguistic. We all know the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, right? If I walked over to childcare, I'll bet I could find children who could tell me that. Yeah, they crossed the Red Sea. But Red Sea may not be the best translation. The word red came from a very early Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint. Probably the word is better translated as read. That was a very common feature in that region. Some of your Bibles probably have a footnote saying that read is a good alternate translation. But we know it is the Red Sea and that's hard to change, just like the 10 plagues, you know, which are really 10 signs. We're stuck with that. But even the word sea is a problem. In modern terms, a sea is a body of salt water, usually the edge of an ocean where it meets the land. But the Hebrews had only one word that was used for both sea and lake. That's why in Israel, what do you have? 
the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, and they're both lakes, right? Neither one is a sea. I know the Dead Sea is salty, but it is a hypersaline lake. I looked it up because you're going to say that to me, but no, it's a lake. So although we call this the Red Sea, it could equally be called the Lake of Reeds. So that gives you a different picture. The other problem is that although the text gives place names, we aren't sure where those ancient places were located. The topography has changed significantly over the centuries. If you're listening to this by the audio again, you'll want to look at the maps. So on map one, I've marked the most important issues. You see the two place names that are highlighted in yellow, Ramesses and Sukkot? Of all the places mentioned in this portion of the text, those are the only ones that we're probably sure we can place in somewhat the right area. Place names changed over the years. Some places were abandoned. Archaeologists are still discovering new sites and trying to figure out what they were. Etham is placed in various spots. And the names that I circle in red, Migdal and Pihahiroth, are often placed uh, a good deal north. That's the arrows going north. So after the Israelites had traveled from Sukkoth to Etham, wherever that was, God told them to turn back toward Pihahiroth and fool the Egyptians. So what direction did they turn in? Like, we're not sure. And do you see the blue shading stretching up from the Gulf of Suez into the lakes? Centuries ago, the water level in that area was much higher. And it's likely that some of the southernmost lakes in that chain were actually connected. It was, and they weren't separate bodies of water. But we're not sure how that looked. We just know there was a lot more water there. See the purple line coming down from the Mediterranean um, coast down toward the lakes? That's an ancient canal that the Egyptians dug. And it probably would have had an Egyptian military presence along it, guarding it. So that would be another reason for the Israelites to turn south before they headed east. But interestingly enough, some scholars translate Pi-Hahiroth as meaning the mouth of the canal. And presumably that would mean it would be located at the southern end of that canal where it empties into the lake. So that's one reason they move it a lot further north. And at the bottom of the map, um, the very bottom right corner, some scholars think that Mount Sinai was actually across the Gulf of Aqaba in Midian. They, that's a not as popular location, but some people do that. So what are we going to say? Although the biblical text does describe a real event, we can't pin down exactly those ancient places. That was 3,500 years ago. Um, map 2 shows some of the views that scholars take for um, the root of the Israelites. This is, these are the more popular conservative scholars okay, that believe it happened. <clears throat> I drew three options. There's all kinds of variations of them. One constraint is the time factor. The text seems to indicate about three days' journey from Ramesses to the crossing of the, of the sea. The Israelites camped at Ramesses, at Sukkot, at Etham, and then Pihahiroth where they crossed. If you look at Numbers 33, there's a list of the camping stops that the Israelites made on their journey. So scholars disagree on whether some of the crossings here would have had enough water to fit the story, but since there was a lot more water, um, we don't really know. But traveling all the way down to the Gulf of Suez would definitely give you, I'm not ready for that yet, but that's okay. 
traveling all the way down to the Gulf of Suez would give you more water, but it would be a long way to go in three days. You've got people on foot driving flocks and herds. They, they go pretty slowly. So the next purple line, another theory, is that the crossing was actually at the Gulf of Aqaba, which is a long way away. It's on the eastern side there. And they would say that Mount Sinai is in Midian. That adds about 150 or so miles to that first part of the trip before they cross the sea. It's a little harder to fit with the text. You have to make some adjustments. It does give you lots of nice deep water. So what's the final takeaway? Geography is important because unless you understand the places involved, you can't always follow the storyline. But in this case, with all the historical uncertainties, we can't pin down exactly where the crossing took place. We know a general area, and we know that it was a real event. Which brings us to the next question. How did God do this? The text says that Moses used his staff both to open up the waters and to close the passage again that God caused a great east wind to blow all night, and that the waters were divided with dry land between them and a wall of water on each side. Three times the dry land is mentioned. If water had just receded due to some tidal event, it would have left mud behind, right? But it didn't. God paved the way for his people, both literally and figuratively. Most of the cartoons and pictures of this that I've seen show a narrower passageway between the waters than I think would actually have been needed. How wide an open space would you need to move that many people and their animals across in the time frame given? Just think about that. That's a massive crowd. So such a large opening would displace a lot of water, no matter how deep it is. So it would be easy to have a wall of water on either side, even if it wasn't that deep to start with. But that shows, too, that they didn't just ford at a shallow crossing, because God carved a hole in the water for them and piled it up on either side of them. But in all this, we have to be careful when we try to figure out exactly how God did it. For this and for the 10 signs that went before, scholars spend countless hours trying to figure out the exact mechanisms. You've maybe seen some of this. Maybe you've done some of that. It's tempting. But we have to be careful. We're talking about a supernatural event. Look at these definitions of supernatural. Unexplainable by natural law or phenomenon, not able to be explained by the laws of science. So we take a supernatural event and then we try to figure out how to explain it using the natural laws and science that we're familiar with. Right? But God works outside our box. So how do we think we can figure him out using just our frame of reference? I've heard scholars say, for example, that the story in Joshua 10, where the sun stood still for a whole day while they fought the Amorites, couldn't possibly have happened because it would have thrown the physics of the whole universe off. Well, it would have if God were subject to natural law, but he created day and night and the sun, and he can do just whatever he wants with it. Same thing here in Exodus. God writes the rules. He can change them. Have you ever gone through that season of parenting when every time you give your child an instruction, they say, why? You'll get there. And sometimes in your frustration, you don't even try to think of a reason. You just say what? Because I said so. Well, I think you have to kind of do some of that here. How did God do it? Any way he wanted to. 
He does use natural events and natural objects, but he can also work outside the natural law. So don't get too caught up in trying to figure out just how God did this or any of his other signs. He's God. So the Israelites crossed on dry ground. What about the Egyptians? Did you notice that the text describes a lot more than simply drowning them? Verse 24 says that the Lord looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic, clogging or maybe even removing their chariot wheels, depending on the translation. They recognized this as supernatural and said, the Lord fights for Israel. You think they would have realized that already before they drove in on dry land, before two walls of water. And that's not very wise in light of recent history because God has clearly demonstrated that he can distinguish between Egyptian and Israelites when he's doing these things. Verse 27 says that as they fled, the Lord threw them into the midst of the sea. That Hebrew verb is like shaking out a cloth or a rug to throw the debris off. And when the sea swept back over them, not one survived in that turbulence. So what was an amazing act of deliverance for the Israelites was a massive act of judgment against the Egyptians. We've mentioned before how deliverance and judgment are the flip sides of the same coin. And what the Egyptians shrieked in terror, the Lord fights for Israel, is a comfort for the Israelites and for us because God has always fought for his people and will continue to do so. And the passage says that as a result, the Israelites both feared the Lord and believed in him and in Moses. We've talked about Moses as a type of Jesus Christ, but the larger Israelite exodus is also a type in our Christian life. Look at the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, using the exodus, specifically the sea crossing, as a type of our life. He was warning the Corinthians not to get lax just because they started well. He said, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. He went on to say that God wasn't pleased with the Israelites, though, and most of them died in the wilderness. He specifically compared the ordinances we practice, baptism and communion, to crossing the Red Sea and then eating the manna and water that God provided. The Israelites were baptized into Moses by following him through the sea, taking on Moses as their leader for the rest of the journey. Just as we at baptism pass through the water and commit ourselves to follow Christ. Both events describe passage into a new life with a new leader. The last time I taught, I challenged you to check your beliefs against what we studied in the lesson. This time, I want to go deeper and challenge you to test your practice. We may say we believe something, but not actually live it. Do you experience the presence of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit, as a significant aspect of your life? Do you know the guidance and comfort that come from that inner presence? Are you committed to the purity and responsibility that befits such an awesome privilege? What about those two statements of God? I will get glory and they shall know that I'm the Lord. How much do your primary life goals reflect the goals that God has set? Are you focused on bringing glory to God and leading people and people groups to know him? When you encounter obstacles, I said I wasn't going to do this. We're going through some difficult things with our kids. When you encounter obstacles, do you have that solid fear of God that keeps you focused more on him than anything else? Which of the two tendencies described are you more likely to fall into? Do you tend to look at the things around you and let them stir up fear? 
or do you tend to turn inward and focus on yourself and how miserable you are, how hard it is? If you see a problem there, what steps can you take to shift your focus back to God? If this exodus is truly a type and a pattern for our lives, then we need to be living in awareness of God's presence with us and to be wholeheartedly committed to pursuing his goals, giving him glory and making him known to the nations. So how much are these driving forces in our lives? How much are we aligning with God and what he's doing? How much are we pursuing our own lives? What are we willing to do to see these goals achieved? Sometimes it's just as important to ask, what are we willing to do without? The Israelites left behind all that they had known to follow God into a desolate wilderness. Only the character and promises of God to rely on. Neither God's character, nor his promises, nor his purposes have changed since that day. God's work continues today just as powerfully as we see it in Exodus. Not only that, but we have a deeper and fuller revelation of God and his plan than the Israelites ever had. And we have an even more intimate and powerful presence in our lives than that pillar of cloud and fire. We have the indwelling Christ through his Holy Spirit. So instead of looking at the shortcoming of the Israelites as we tend to do, we perhaps should be asking how we measure up as we carry out God's work. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for what you've done, what you've shown us in your word. Help us to live up to the examples that we see. Help us to adopt your goals as ours, to recognize that you're in the midst of us, ready and willing to work as we um, work alongside you. I pray that these things will sink deeply into our hearts, our lives, and that we will be transformed and live in the fear of you, desiring to bring you glory and to make you known. And it's only by your help and your strength that this will be possible. So we commit ourselves to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name who secured for us the ability to pray and to achieve these things. Amen.